All right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, one of the pastors here on the team. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. You know, it's been about 25 years, but when I was last in seminary, I remember that class really, really well. They were very clear. They said, on Mother's Day, make sure you absolutely, positively, 100% preach a message on unconditional election and God hardening the hearts of the wicked. And that's where we are. They said, there's no better way to warm a mom's heart than to, than to do that. But you know, the, the more I thought about this passage, the more I was like, you know, there, there's something that's really here in all seriousness. You know, Mother's Day in the family of God, let's be honest, is, is simultaneously a day of incredible joy, but for many, incredible sorrow, all at the same time. Right, I mean, you know, we're gonna go to lunch today, some of you, there's gonna be thankfulness and joy and honor. We're gonna be celebrating our sisters in Christ, moms and grandmoms and mothers and wives. But this is gonna be intermingled, right, for a lot of us with real broken hearts and sadness and sorrow. I mean, I just think about all the stories here of infertility and miscarriages, the death of, of children, moms no longer with us. and. In a lot of ways, that in, intermingling of joy and sorrow really puts us in the place that Paul is in here in Romans chapter 9. Because as, as Paul surveys the landscape in the church, in the kingdom of God, there's an empty seat at the dinner table. There, there's an empty pew in the sanctuary, so to speak. It, the Jews, despite the fact that they're God's chosen people, his old covenant people, for all intents and purposes here in the second generation of the church are not represented. This in spite of the fact that what, Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew, the apostles were Jew, the early church was predominantly Jewish. Yet here they are now, a generation later, and there's very few Jews, mostly Gentiles in the church. And this, of course, would have elicited a, a question, a concern, a charge even, and it would have been something like this. Paul, has the word of God fallen? I mean, if God's word has not been faithful for his old covenant people, how can we trust anything you've been telling us in Romans 1 through 8? How can we trust that God will be faithful to his new covenant people? In fact, their central concern is expressed in that verse six that we looked at last week, Paul has the word of God failed. And that's what Paul has written all of Romans nine, really Romans nine through 11 to address that very issue. And of course, Paul's answer, and we saw this last week, is that the word of God has not failed. In fact, God is doing exactly what he sovereignly has purpose to do. He's saving his people. He's working out his good purposes in their lives through everything and in all things. But then again, that would have raised an additional issue for people. And maybe it raises an additional question or charge on our behalf as well. And it would go something like this. Paul, okay, we, 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 I, we hear you about God's sovereignty. We hear you about him accomplishing his purposes. But, but doesn't, him choosing Isaac over Ishmael or choosing Jacob over Esau, is, is that really fair? Doesn't that make God unrighteous? Doesn't that make him unjust? 
That, that, that doesn't seem like equal treatment under the law, Paul, if some are saved and others aren't. And again, that's not merely an academic question. It's a question we all wrestle with. Um, not just on Mother's Day, although it's definitely extenuated on Mother's Day, but, but it's, a, it's a paradigm oftentimes for our whole lives. When we think about where we are in our relationships or marriages or families or finances or station of life, and we wonder, God, are, are you faithful? Is, is this what your faithfulness looks like? Is this, I mean, I, I see this person over here and they have this life and I don't. I see this person over here, they have this kind of family and I don't. Or they have this kind of marriage or this kind of child or this kind of career. God, are you faithful to your promises in my life? That's the subtext of Romans 9. And we're gonna be there again this morning. And so if you can, I'm gonna invite you to stand as we read God's word. Just five verses this morning. And Paul is responding to this very specific question, is God righteous? And here's what he says, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Father, we have to admit, I have to confess, to our 21st century ears, these are hard verses. Lord, they, they, they cut us to the core. They, they challenge some of the most basic assumptions that we have in all of life about who you are and who we are and how you should work and what faithfulness looks like. But Lord, remind us this morning, this word is part of your Holy Scripture. It is good, it is right, it is given to us for our souls, for our confidence, for our assurance of salvation for our, for our rock-solid assurance that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in control of every single thing that happens in our lives, and that in that you are working it for us, for our good in Jesus Christ. So Lord, give us the grace now to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may take your seats. We've used the courtroom lingo and paradigm a number of times in Romans, and this is going to be no different. So there's, let me just kind of set the passage up in terms of how we're going to divide this up and look at it. So first of all, we're going to look at the charge. There is a charge that's being made, and Paul wants us to understand what the charge against God is. Secondly, he's going to marshal the evidence to back up his response to this charge. So we're going to talk about the evidence. And then lastly, of course, there can be no good trial without a verdict. And Paul is going to pronounce one. But first of all, let's look at the charge. We find it in verse 14. Paul says it very clearly. What shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? Is God arbitrary? Is God capricious? Is God a respecter of persons? And what we find Paul embarking on here, and really it's what Romans 9 is all about, is what theologians call a theodicy. And a theodicy is simply a defense for God. It's a case or a justification or an argumentation made on behalf of God. It's an apologetic endeavor of sorts. That's why the book I've recommended to you to kind of read along with this series, um, The Justification of God by, by John Piper, that's what he's talking about. The justification, the theodicy, the defense of God and it's a very relevant and timely issue for us, particularly in our day and age. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a collection of essays that were collected posthumously after his death, and these essays were called God in the Dock. Now, what does that mean, God in the Dock? Now, we have several Brits in our midst, and they would tell you, right, this is not about God going on a boat ride, right? This is, the, this is what the Brits say happens when you go on trial in the UK, all right? The, the, the accused does not take the witness stand or the witness chair, but the accused stands in the dock, right? Think of it kind of like a holding pen where the accused has to answer for the charges that are brought against them. And Lewis makes this, I think, I mean, it's an incredible, 70 years ago he wrote this. It's very prophetic, though. Lewis says that in modern contemporary culture, we have gone from seeing ourselves in the dock, in other words, as guilty sinners, as people under God's righteous judgment, having to answer to him, and we've just kind of slipped places, right? We swapped places. We, we, now we put God in the dock. Now we place him on the trial. We make him answer our questions and accusations and judgments while we act as his judge, See, God's righteousness, particularly for our culture, is a huge apologetic issue. Guys, God has been accused of everything from genocide to homicide to abuse to war to poverty and all manner of evil. And, and by the way, if you want to dig into that a little bit more, a great apologetic resource, and we've, we've mentioned it a number of times here over the years at Four Oaks, is The Reason of God by Tim Keller. And um, again, this is also available out at the, at the, books, uh, the book resource area. And what Tim talks about, and Tim and I are on a first name basis, in case you didn't realize that, okay? But, but what, what, what Tim talks about there is he's addressing a postmodern audience who, in fact, has God on the witness stand. And he just examines this issue from a variety of perspectives. It's, it's excellent. Because here's why this is important. Guys, this is important because the Bible is crystal clear about God's impartiality, about God's justice. Here's just a couple of passages. Deuteronomy 32.4. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is nothing but righteous and faithful. 2 Chronicles 19.7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. 
And again, we understand, because we want to to keep it very personal here, this is not just an apologetic issue out there. This is a very personal issue in here. I, I wonder where in your life right now you're tempted to bring a charge against God. Now, you may not frame it that way. You may not say it out loud in community group for fear of being banished. You, you, you may keep it to yourself, but it's there, right? It's the subtext. It's, it, it's rumbling around in your heart. God, why me in this incurable disease? Or, or, or God, the way you seem to be working in my life right now doesn't seem to be fair. This doesn't seem to be righteous. Where in your life are you wrestling with that right now? I want to say two things before we leave this point about that. Number one, you need to know God is big enough, mighty enough, and sovereign enough to absorb all of your accusations and complaints and anger and mine as well. Plenty big. However, I do say this, what I think is the authority of God's word. He doesn't want you to live there, Christian. He doesn't want you to become consumed and embittered and hardened in your heart towards him. That's why he gives us the book of Habakkuk. It could be a great little read, three short chapters to read right alongside this one. But listen to how Habakkuk in the Old Testament begins. And this is the prophet, and he begins his book with a complaint or a charge. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Guys, do you sometimes just see injustice around you in your life, in the culture, and just say, God, how how long? That's Habakkuk. But God takes Habakkuk on a journey that by the end of that book, look at how Habakkuk's vision has transformed and changed. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, every calamity this side of heaven that you can imagine. What does he say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. As that's my heart's prayer, my pastor's prayer for you as the people of God, it's for, it's for me. And it's, it's the place, it's, it's why Paul has given us this text. It's why God has inspired this text. And what Paul wants to turn our attention to here is, does this doctrine of election, of sovereignty, of, of God's being in total control over all things, does this make God unjust. And Paul is going to be arguing no. And he offers in defense of God two pieces of evidence. All right. So now we're on to the second point. Two pieces of evidence. And all you lawyer types will tell me if I'm saying this right. Paul introduces exhibit A. I've always wanted to say that. Introduce exhibit A. Right. Exhibit A, Moses. So look at verse 15. God says, Paul's already brought up the issue. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, 15.4. In other words, because, and Paul's gonna say no, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, let's think for a second. That's a bit of an odd response, right? It's kind of like saying, because I told you so, right? It's kind of like, well, God's not unfair. God's not unrighteous. Why? Because he's going to have mercy on whom he has mercy. He's going to have compassion on whom he has compassion. Well, super important that we understand what Paul is quoting here in the context to help us understand this. Verse 15 is a direct quote from Exodus 33. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there for a second. The context of Exodus 33, remember in Exodus 32, um, Moses had gone up to the mountain to worship God, to receive for him the law, the Ten Commandments. He comes back down, and what's happening? It's Animal House at Mount Sinai, right? I mean, the people are partying. They made the golden calf. There's debaucherous behavior. Moses smashes the Ten Commandments in righteous anger. And all of this was happening, I mean, under the very shadow of the Almighty, right? Under the very shadow of the Almighty God. And it tells us in Exodus 32 and 33 that 3,000 were struck down by the sword. It also tells us that God sent a pestilence throughout the, the, the group of the Israelite people. It swept through, and only because Moses intercedes for the people. Remember, that's what a priest does, intercedes for the people um, to God. Moses pleads for God to spare them, and God does. Now, here's what happens next. Okay, so you got, you got, you got the context here. Listen to what Exodus 33 says. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. This is all sounds good so far, right? I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hibites, the Jebusites, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the kicker. But I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. There was no room for rejoicing. Even though God was going to give them the desires of their heart, he was going to fulfill all of their dreams, but he said, I'm not going with you. Let me ask you a question. This is one John Piper asked. If by some miracle this morning, God gave you everything you wanted, all the desires of your heart, your family restored, kids multiplied, children walking with the Lord, I mean, you fill in the blanks for whatever that is. But then God said, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to be there. You're going to go at it alone. You can have whatever you want, but you can't have me. Would you do it? See, that's a true test of the human heart, isn't it? That's the true test. Even the people of Israel recognized immediately this is a disastrous word. Part of our issue as a contemporary church is we don't recognize that for the disastrous word that it is. We think, if I only had these things, God's peripheral to that. And it's in the middle of, of, of this disastrous word 
that we get this quote that we find in Romans 9.15. So let's read it. And God said to him, if your presence will not go, I'm sorry, this is God saying to Moses. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And here's the quote. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on who I will show mercy. Now, do you get the context now? Moses says, God, it's a disastrous word. You've got to go with us. And God says, okay, I will go. And then Moses, kind of checking his ears a little bit, makes a request. He says, God, please reveal yourself to me. Show me your glory. Tell me who you are. And, and why does Moses have to ask this at this point? Because he knows he and the people of God are on the precipice of being consumed. On what basis, he's saying, that's, this is what Moses is asking, can you, God, the holy God, Journey with us, your sinful people. How can we still be received in your presence? And then God says, let me disclose something about myself to you, Moses. Let me proclaim my name. And this is what he says. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Please understand what's being said here in terms of the way the Hebrew is constructed. God's saying mercy and grace and compassion aren't simply things that I do or that I show or that I demonstrate. They are, but that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is I am mercy. I am compassion. I am grace. That is my name. That is who I am. That is the very essence of who I am in my being. See, what, what he's telling Moses is that for the person who recognizes their sinfulness, and this is for you this morning, for the person who recognizes their sinfulness, recognizes their need for grace, recognizes above all they don't deserve the grace of God, the deepest impulse of God is to show mercy. The deepest impulse of God is to show mercy grace, that is who he is. Where in your life this morning, folks, do you need to be reminded of that? Mercy and grace aren't just a part of God. God doesn't have parts. Mercy and grace is who God is. And in response to how will you go up with us, God, we, we, we're, we're on the precipice of disaster. We have been having this debaucherous rebellion against you, and God says, I go with you because I am gracious. That, 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 that's the piece of evidence that Moses is presenting here. And based upon this, look at verse 16, um, Paul has a conclusion. And this, is, and this is, I think, if you want to pinpoint one single verse in all of Romans 9 that I think everything hinges on, no pressure on a Mother's Day, right? This is it. Verse 16, 
So then, this is Paul's conclusion to that piece of evidence, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is the it when it says, so then it depends? It's God's mercy. In other words, Paul's saying God's mercy doesn't depend upon you and human will. It depends upon him and his divine will. The literal translation to this, by the way, in other words, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, literally says it depends not on him who wills or runs. See, at our greatest place of sinfulness and need, Paul is saying, the ability to save ourselves does not rest upon us. It rests upon God. His will and salvation is decisive, not yours and not mine. Because if our will was decisive in salvation for us, guess what? You would never choose God. See, this does not mean, by the way, that you don't have a will, or you and I don't make choices, or that we can't freely choose certain things. That, that's, that's not what we're saying here. The question is, in salvation, whose will is decisive? Is this a matter of a competition of God's will and your will? It's not that at all. See, Paul says it depends not on human will. He can't be any clearer than this. See, free will, I don't like to use that term free will because in salvation, it's not about will. It's about ability. See, don't follow with me here. Our will, our wills are constrained by our nature. And it's our nature that determines our abilities. Let me give you an example. Some of you know that I live right up the street and I like to walk back and forth to church here on occasion, uh, whenever I can. It's, what you, it's fighting for my very waistline each and every day here, right? And, and, and from time to time, you folks will honk at me. And just so you know, I, I never know who you are because you're always violating the speed limit. I just want to say that, right? <laughs> I have the freedom to walk. I do. I have the ability but I don't have the ability to fly. I, I, I can get on top of this catwalk and I can give it a shot, but I have not been given that ability. It's not a part of my nature. I'm constrained by my nature. Guys, the same principle holds for all of us spiritually. See, there's certain choices we can make morally. See, God's word, God's, God, we're made in the image of God. God's laws written on our hearts and conscience. But the one thing you and I can't do on our own is exercise saving faith. Guys, as we saw from John 3 last week, we can't even see the kingdom. We can't, it's, it's spiritually discerned and we are natural people. We can't regenerate our hearts. We can't see our own need for Christ. Only God can reveal that to us just like he did to the people of Israel. Guys, by the way, this is why we call salvation or justification a monergistic word. Mono means one. It means in one direction. Salvation is not a matter of you and God cooperating. Okay, it's monergistic. Our sanctification, on the other hand, 
where we're growing in godliness. That's a synergistic effort, a cooperative effort between us and God. But, but you may be hearing this and may say, well, 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 wait a minute, Pastor Paul. What about my faith? Isn't that a choice that I make? Absolutely. It is a choice you make. And, you, and if you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will perish in your sins. But the only reason that you are able to place your faith in Christ is that he has awakened your dead heart. He has changed your nature. He has opened your eyes to see yourself as you are truly. And remember, your faith, even your faith, is a gift. See, a lot of times we think, well, you know, God died for 99% of my sins, but the sin of unbelief, that's up to me. No, no, no. God died even for your unbelief. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Listen, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. And the way that Paul relates our will and God's will is in this way. And I I love the way he puts this. Philippians 2, 12 through 14. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, now here's the charge, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do I do that, Paul? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will, there's the word, and to work for his good pleasure. This is Paul's first piece of evidence that God is not unjust. And it's simply this, Four Oaks. God is a God of mercy and grace and compassion even when we don't deserve it. Particularly when we don't deserve it. In fact, it's the opposite of unfairness. Fairness is they're all perishing. Fairness is I'm gonna wipe out all of the people, Moses. That's fair. What's unfair, if we want to use human terminology, is the grace of God. And so Paul says, this is who God is. And and let me just, before we leave this little piece, where in your life, forks, do you need to be reminded of that? That it's all by his sheer grace. That 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 all good things come from above. That that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, but he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B, and by the way, that was the easy one. This is the hard one. All right, here we go. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, exhibit B is Pharaoh. Now, before we we dive into this one, one of the things that Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this, I think he preached in through Romans 9 and 89 sermons or something like that. But one of his comments here, and this is so good, Paul's not sharing his personal opinion here. When Paul is dealing with the fine china of our lives, issues of sovereignty and salvation and broken hearts and broken dreams, Paul's not giving his take. I'm not giving my take. Where does Paul go to? He goes to the Bible. 
He goes to the scriptures, and, and, and again, you're gonna hear me say this all throughout Romans 9, however you land, quote unquote, with these things, however you divide these things up, chop them up, understand them, and apply them for your own, for your own hearts and lives, may it be based upon the word of God. May, may that be your ultimate arbiter of truth. Isn't it interesting, by the way, not in the notes, that Paul assumes they know the word of God. He assumes it. And so Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, now let's go back. He says, for this reason I raised you up. Now that term, raise you up, let me say what it means and what it doesn't mean. Okay, let's go back to what he says here. I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. That word raised up, it means to put into place. It means to set forward. It means to put God placing Pharaoh in this particular place and in this particular time. It doesn't say that that word raise up does not mean created, by the way, okay? The word, that's a different word. That's important because God is not the author of evil. God did not create Pharaoh evil. Pharaoh, like all of us, was born full of sin. Pharaoh, like all of us, was born with a hardened heart. In fact, it tells us in Exodus that not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, but it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But this word hardening is found 10 times in Exodus, all in reference to Pharaoh, and it means to render obstinate. It means to hand someone over to their own stubbornness. Okay, look at Exodus 4. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. How does God harden a heart? And guys, let's be honest, this is uncomfortable language for us 21st century folk. This is, this, is, this is where, if we're not careful, we are tempted to try to explain all the things that this doesn't mean. When in reality, I think Paul something is saying something very clear. And he gives us a clue as to what this idea of hardening means by what he says in Romans chapter one, all right? So let me, let me read from Romans one, hear the same language. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and here's the key verse, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. See, what Paul is saying is that in all of humanity who is, are wicked and sinful and full of hardened hearts, for some, God simply gives them up. He passes over them. He, he removes his restraining hand of grace. He says, if that's what you really want, then that's what I'm really going to give you. 
Guys, it's a terror. This is why the people were, said this was a calamitous word if God does not go with us. See, God, this is not a matter of, if you've seen Seinfeld, we're the soup Nazi, where, where, where God's like, no mercy for you, right? You're doing great, you're awesome, you're exercising faith. I'm gonna sort of willy-nilly, arbitrarily decide to go through the room here and harden people's hearts. That's not what's happened. That's not what Paul means. What Paul is saying that as part of his judgment for people's hearts who were already hardened, he passes over. He releases them into their own flesh, their own sinful choices. Now, that's going to raise another question. It's the one we get to next week. Why, Pastor Paul? Why, why, does, why does God do this? God clearly has the capacity to save everyone. Why would he not? That's next week. But there is a clue. Okay, there is a clue. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, hardened you, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, there is going to be a day when every wrong is made right, when every injustice is going to be corrected, when every act of unrighteousness will be spoken for. There will be a day when God's justice and wrath and glory will be poured out. And what will we as the objects of mercy do on that day? We will praise God. We will give glory to God. We will say God is magnificent. Not only is he mighty to say, not only is he gracious and compassionate, but he is glorious and holy and he is going to fix everything that is wrong and that's what our hearts yearn for. This is where Paul takes us, is going to take us next week. But this is evidence number two, and, and here we arrive at the verdict. So, Paul, is God unjust? And go back to verse 14, what does he say? By no means. And then sort of in his closing argument, his closing statement, verse 18 so then, this is Paul's concluding argument, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Church, the reason God is not unfair is that he's either saving the sinner who doesn't deserve it or he's punishing the sinner who does. And his freedom to save whom he chooses, guys, they are for reasons that are inscrutable to us. It's not our job to figure this stuff out. It's simply our job to entrust ourselves to the sovereign will of God who always does what is right even when we can't see it. This is what makes him God. He is bound by no man. He is absolutely free in answers to no one that's what makes him God. Now let me ask you this. Do you want to know where you see this dynamic being played out of God handing over someone for his glory and our good? Because we see it at the last meal with Judas. See, John tells us it was in Judas's heart to commit betrayal, to hand over the Son of God. 
And what does Jesus tell Judas at that moment? Guys, do you not think Jesus could have restrained Judas? Do you not think that at that moment he could have shown Judas mercy? But what does Jesus tell him? He says, Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. See, that's Jesus handing him over so that he could, in fact, betray the Son of God. Because the Son of God had to be betrayed to die for your betrayal, to die for my betrayal, to, to enable him to show his compassion and mercy and grace. And so what we want to walk away from this text today with is not a raised fist to God of saying, why haven't you, or why did you, or why aren't you going to? But to say, God, you're God, and I entrust myself to you, and I don't see all the reasons. I don't see, the, I don't see behind the curtain. I don't see the big picture like you do, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to entrust myself to you. Everything I have is all because of your grace, all because of your mercy. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, Four Oaks, I wanna, want us to do that reflecting on this fact that Judas was given over to his own sin so that Jesus could die for yours. And so just spend a couple of moments reflecting silently before the Lord, and as you're doing that, I'm gonna invite our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the Lord's table.